please as we share scripture together. The scripture reading for tonight is the text for the message. It's in the 26th chapter of 1 Samuel, the 21st verse. The title of the message tonight is King Saul, the Tragic Fool. 1 Samuel 26, 21. Then said Saul, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do thee harm, because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. Let us pray. Thomas and Thomas wrote a series of biographies of famous people. And in the preface to one of their biographies, they wrote that men and women really live two different kinds of lives that can be recorded. One is the mortal life, the usual facts and the usual statistics of dates and places and events. But the other and far more important biography is that which deals with immortal man. Those forces at work about him and within him that determine the kind of choices made, that determine which turn of the road will be taken. Our immortal biographies are far more important than our mortal ones. Jesus was talking about that when he said, you know, it's much better if an individual never lives this life at all if he does not enter into eternal life and know the joy of eternal relationship with the Father. In this series, as we are looking at the lives of great men and women of the Bible, we have looked at Samson. And we have shared something of his life and his willingness to become a tool. We have taken a look at Caleb, when as an old man, 85 years of age, he claimed a mountain that God had promised him 45 years before. And as he had set foot on that mountain by faith, so then he claimed his mountain by faith. Tonight we come to look at the life 
of one of the most interesting of all of the lives described for us in biography in the Old Testament. It is the life of the first king of Israel. Israel had been ruled by five judges. The time is about 1095 B.C. Coming to the close of the time of the judgeship of Samuel, the people clamor for a king. They see how those who would follow Samuel are living, and they want no part of that. And they look around at the neighbors round about them, and they say, we want a king like the other folks have. You know, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. But I remember what somebody wrote about that. If the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, just remember, it takes a lot more mowing over there. Well, the grass looked greener. And they said, we want a king. And Samuel was brokenhearted because he felt that the people really were rejecting him. And he took the matter to God and he said, look at them and listen to them. Ingrates, every one of them. I've given them my best. I've served them. I've followed you. You have led me. I have tried to be a blessing to them for you and in your name. And now they don't want me anymore. Now they say they want a king like the other nations have. And God said, Samuel, no, you've got it all wrong. They're not fed up with you. They're fed up with me. They're not really tired of you, Samuel. They're tired of me. Tell you what I want you to do, Samuel. I want you to tell them exactly what's going to happen if they get a king. And let's see what they'll do then. And so in that story, as we follow it, we find in the 8th chapter of 1 Samuel, beginning at the 10th verse, we find the description of what it's going to mean to the people if they persist in getting a king. Now, you've heard me say before, I believe that the, moder that the Bible is modern and that is relevant and that it speaks to our age and to our time and to our generation. And if this doesn't sound like Washington, D.C., I never read a better description of it. You just listen. 1 Samuel 8, beginning at the 10th verse. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that ask of him a king. And he said, This shall be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, and to be his horsemen, 
and some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties, and will set them to ear his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his instruments of war and the instruments of his chariots. And he'll take your daughters to be confectioners. Now, for you youngsters in the crowd, and that word stumps you, that simply means those who will be making Krispy Kreme donuts. That's exactly what that means. And to be cooks. And to be bakers. And he'll take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. And he'll take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards, and give them to his officers and to his servants. Why, he'll take your men servants, and he'll take your maid servants, and your goodliest young men, and your asses, and put them to his work. Why, he'll take a tenth of your sheep, and you shall be his servants. And you'll cry out in that day because of your king, which you have chosen you, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. The 19th verse begins with a tragic word. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, we will have a king over us. And they got him. It's always interesting to see God at work in the lives of his people. The people insisted. They clamored. Even being told the price that they would have to pay. Still they insisted we want to be like the folks round about us. The other nations have kings. We want a king too. So point us out the man who's to be for us, and let's do it. Now, in this instance, as in every instance in reality, when we're sensitive to it, God always works at both ends of the line. When God saw that the people were determined to have a king who would rule over them, he said, all right, I'll have my part in the selection of the man. And so he set up the way that the people would be led to know just exactly the man whom God himself had selected to be the first king of Israel. God always works at both ends of the line when we let him. That's one of the reasons why I have such great joy in the knowledge that when Baptist churches need a pastor, as you do, and when you pray earnestly to the Lord for God's guidance, that he will guide you as a people, but not only you, but the Holy Spirit of God will be much at work guiding that one individual whom he has already selected to be the pastor of this congregation. And God will prepare his heart, and God will speak to him, and God will plant the seed there until when the time is ripe, Everything will be just exactly right, and you'll come together 
as people and man, and you'll serve him together. I like to think of this also as to what it means in this business of soul winning. I don't know anybody that does not get a little bit of squeamishness and sometimes butterflies in your stomach when you go and you knock on a door of people and you don't know anything about them much. You don't know how they're going to react. You don't know whether they're going to welcome you in. You don't know whether they're going to say, come in and sit down. You don't know whether they're going to smile or whether they're going to fuss and grumble and turn the television up just a little bit. And while you're there trying to talk to them, they're peering past you and really watching that one-eyed monster the whole time. You really just don't know exactly how folks are going to react when you go to present the good news about Jesus. But that's the importance of praying before we go. That's the necessity, not a perfunctory kind of thing, not just an automatic kind of something where you stop and pray to sort of psych yourself up. No, that's not it at all. For we pray before we go. Why? So that the Holy Spirit of God, knowing where we plan to go and where we plan to knock on the door, and knowing that old guy over there, will begin long before we get there to work in the heart. So that when we get there, and the gospel is presented, a harvest can be gathered in. Decisions can be made. God does work at both ends of the line. And he did it this time. And when you read these marvelous passages that tell us exactly how God led in it and how God brought them all together and how God put his finger right down on Saul. And when you, when you see that, that even though God was not necessarily pleased in the whole process of them clamoring for a king, yet he allowed them to have a king and he led them to the man he wanted them to know. And when they found him, he was a young fellow. And when they said, you're to be our king, the first king, he said, you've got to be making a mistake, not me. Why, why my, my tribe is the smallest tribe of, of all the tribes of Israel. The king surely will come out of the biggest and most powerful tribe. And, and, and even, if, even if it's to be my father's tribe, Surely it won't be our family because my father's family is the, the puniest family. Why, we're the least family in this smallest tribe. And, and surely you don't mean me. If anybody, it ought to be somebody else in the family, not me. And they said, God has put his finger on you. And you are the man to be the first king of Israel. When we watch him at the very beginning, when we take a good look at him, when we stand back and see him in operation, there are so many things that are attractive about him. He looked the part. He was handsome. The Bible describes him in this way. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man, godly. And there was not among the children of Israel a, a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders upward, he was higher than any of the people. Well, he had have been on a basketball team. He looked the part. He was big, and he was tall, and he was commanding. He had a marvelous physique. Why, he just, he looked the part. He looked like what a king ought to look like. 
I remember when I was in the Navy on a particular base, one day they, they gave the instructions, get everything all cleaned up, spit and polish, make it shine, a very important visitor is coming. So we got busy and did all those unusual things amidst all the grumbling and the griping and the fussing and the cussing that goes on with that kind of word, of all that extra work that has to go on, get ready for some important visitor, some VIP. And we were assembled out on the apron of the airstrip, and the plane came in. And finally the word went up and down the way, this is young King Michael the exiled king of Romania. And the plane stopped and he got off and you could pick him out immediately. Just like Saul, he was head and shoulders above all the others. I remember distinctly, handsome young man and all of the, 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 the wonder of, the, uh, uh, of those European kingly kind of uniforms that, that kings would wear. And he, and he had one on and he stepped out and he, and he reviewed the folks. He just looked the part. Now Saul was like that. He just looked the part. Big, handsome, tall, strapling fellow. He just commanded respect and awe and admiration. And as he began his earthly reign, he was a very humble individual. He put his trust in God. He drew his strength from this great old patriarch, this, this leader of God, and he sought advice from him. And with such a beginning as that, such a beginning as that, how is it that when we look over here in the verse that I've read for the text for the message, then Saul, Saul said, I've sinned. Return, return my son David, for I will do thee no more harm. Because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. Behold, behold, I've played the fool. I've erred. I've erred exceedingly. Why in the world would a fellow with such a magnificent beginning come to the end of his days with a word like that? Just as surely as if he had taken the sharp chisels and worked away at the granite to cut an epitaph for his own tombstone. I've played the fool. I've erred exceedingly. There were reasons for his failure, and I think it's wise to see them. Because it's just possible that there are some, maybe a lot, of folks in this room who might find some kind of a kinship in the decisions that King Saul made as he journeyed downhill instead of uphill. When I look at the life of this brilliant and handsome young man, I have to realize as I study these passages that deal with his life and with his reign, as king, with his leadership of the army, with what he did in his family, I have to realize that he had within him the capacity to deceive himself. Somehow or other, it got to be in his life that just like an old horse that has blinders on like this, 
that King Saul created some blinders and he just couldn't really see what was going on on either side. And that there were blind spots as he looked at his own life. Those times that he would make decisions without stopping to examine the results of those decisions and the end result of those decisions. He had the, that capacity to deceive himself. It's coming down toward the last battle and he's scared to death. His old mentor, Samuel, is long dead. He says to himself, oh, if just one more time I could get advice from old Samuel. I think things would be all right. Just one more time, I could talk to him, and I could hear his voice, and he could give me some guidance and some instruction. But he's dead. I know what I'll do. I'll go over to the witch of Endor, and I'll have her call the spirit of Samuel. God had issued a decree against such things. God had said, this is an abomination unto me. And by the way, if you are an avid reader of the horoscopes, you follow in that line of folks who are an abomination to the Lord. God has said, the next five minutes belongs to him. The next hour belongs to him. Tomorrow belongs to him. Next week belongs to him. And when we try to ferret out by devious means and following these occult false prophets who would say what a tomorrow is to bring by some, some positioning of the stars, we turn away from the guidance and the reality of the Word of God in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that is an abomination unto the Lord. Samuel, long dead, Saul said, if I could just talk to him one more time. And he went to the witch of Endor to seek to call forth a word from old Samuel. Oh, he was the champion alibi of all times. He went into an earlier battle. God had given explicit instructions about that battle. He said, I'll be on your side. You'll go in and take it. But when you take that army and when you take that city... When you capture that king, I want it all destroyed. I want the king and I want his family and I want that city and I want all the spoils of it destroyed. I don't want any part of it to be left. That's what God said. And king Saul won the battle, but he thought he knew more than God. And he thought he'd do what he wanted to do rather than what God said for him to do. And so he hid a part of it for himself and he kept some of it for himself and he and he took the king and put him over to the side and God said you've disobeyed me you see King Saul as magnificent as was his start had the capacity to deceive himself for he thought he knew more than God knew you say wasn't that a shame for a fellow to be so foolish and yet how many times how many times have you said to God I know more about this situation than you do God I'll do this the way I want to do it. I live my life the way I want to live my life, God. Keep your hands off. I'll spend my money the way I want to spend my money, God. You haven't got any right to tell me where I ought to spend my money. You know, there are some folks who have a foolish notion. They have the foolish notion that the tenth is the Lord's 
and they give the Lord a tenth. They get out their little pocket calculators and they figure it out to the exact penny and they give God their tenth. And they say, all right, I've done that. Now the rest of it's mine. But it's not. Everything's the Lord's. You belong to God. Your family belongs to God. Your house belongs to God. Your car belongs to God. The ability to earn a living is given to you of God. There's not a thing you possess that does not belong to God. How dare you say that 90% of it is yours to spend as you want? Oh, you say, you're not even giving him the first tenth? My, my. Well, King Saul had the capacity to deceive himself. He thought he knew more about things than God. Do you? Do you think you know more about how to live your life than God does? You might be walking the same way old Saul walked. I'm not saying you are. I'm just saying you might be. And it might be worth your while to look around and see which way you're going. This interesting young man who had so much going for him became the victim of a dread disease. And that dread disease was jealousy. Jealousy. Things were going fine for him. He was winning his battles. The folks would pick their guitars and their banjos out in the streets down there in Jerusalem, and they would sing, Saul has killed his thousands, and oh, he liked that. But then there came a time. There came a time when a young fellow from the country with a little old tiny slingshot and some little old pebbles had worked over old Goliath. And that big old giant had crumbled. And the enemy of the people had perished. His head whacked off. And David became the hero. And so now when the banjo pickers worked out in the streets of Jerusalem, they sang, David has killed, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And he heard that. I don't like that. People like David better than they like me. That old dread monster of jealousy began to eat away at his heart. And he had loved David. But he began to scheme. He began to work at ways that he could get at David. That he could destroy him. Without realizing that in the midst of it all, the anointing of God was to come upon him. When vicious hate and jealousy fills any of the servants of God, 
mark it down, nail it down, know it certainly that that man, that woman, that boy, that girl that lets jealousy for another Christian worker become a part of his life is on the toboggan road down. Are there others that win more to the Lord and you begin to envy them? Are there others that sing sweeter melodies and you begin to hate them secretly? Are there others that can do more and you begin to despise them? Be careful! For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. He became a victim, a victim of jealousy. Prosperity went to his head. I used to hear Dr. Lee say, never worried about my folks when they were young and poor and struggling and had a lot of bills. Said, I count on them. Count on them Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, revival times. Count on them. But oh, when the paycheck began to get a little bit bigger than the bills. Oh, when they could afford the house out on the lake as well as the house at town. Oh, when they could have that recreation vehicle and began to move. When they could have that boat out on the lake. Pretty soon the wheels began to turn. Look how much I got invested in that place. Better use it some. Starts out just Friday night and Saturday and get back for church. Then pretty soon it's Friday night and Saturday night. Well, we'll have Sunday school with the neighbors on Sunday morning out there. And then pretty soon you don't see them anymore. Prosperity went to his head. Well, as a king, he had every reason to be prosperous. You read what Samuel said, inspired of the Lord, as he told the people how much wealth he would have, and he had it. And his prosperity went to his head. But it was a prosperity that took him away from God and not toward God. That isn't always true, thank God. Oh, thank God. But there are just an awful lot of fine folks who the more they get, the more they love the Lord. And the more they get, the more they serve the Lord. And the more they get, the sweeter they are and the happier they are, the stronger Christians they become, recognizing that their life is the channel through which whatever God has given them, whatever resources God has made available, they are the channels to reach other people and to the glory of God himself. But poor old Saul was not one of them. And prosperity went to his head. You see, the thing that happened was that Saul found it an easy thing to put God in second place. Isn't that something? Here, this handsome, fine young man with so much to offer, selected by God himself, the finger of God upon him, anointed by God to be the first king of the people. Isn't it amazing that there would come that time when God would be in second or third or fourth place in his life. There was a time in your life when God was the most important somebody around. There was a time in your life when Jesus meant more to you than anybody else. You'd do anything if you felt that Jesus said do it. You'd go anywhere if you knew that Jesus was pointing that way. 
Why, you'd do anything in the whole wide world in the moment and the glory of your conversion experience. Christ was all and in all. But the years come and the years go. And we get busy at this or that or the other, rearing our families or at our business or at our schooling. And we get involved in things and pretty soon, pretty soon like old King Saul, God gets pushed down into second or third or fourth or last place. And you know, he just doesn't like it down there. And you know something? Anybody and everybody that's ever put God in second place ends up low on the totem pole. Saul came to the end of his days, a tragic suicide. Saul came to the end of his days. Let me read it for you. It's in the last chapter of 1 Samuel. It tells about the tragic end of this man who had started so marvelously. This man who stood head and shoulders above the others. This man who was modest. This man who sought God's will for his life. This man who wanted to be an instrument for God. He started out so wonderfully, but it was a toboggan road downhill. And listen to the way that it comes to a close. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard upon Saul and upon his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab. And Melchizedek, Saul's sons. And the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him. And he was sore wounded of the archers. Then said Saul to his armor-bearer, Draw thy sword, draw thy sword, and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword, and he fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. So Saul died, and his three sons and his armor-bearer, and all his men that same day together. And when the men of Israel that were on the other side of the valley and they that were on the other side of Jordan saw that the men of Israel fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they retreated, they forsook the cities, and they fled, and the Philistines came and, and dwelt in them. And it came to pass on the morrow when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen in Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head. And they stripped off his armor 
And they sent into the land of the Philistines round about to publish it in the house of their idols and among the people. And they put his armor in the house of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. I played the fool. I've erred exceedingly. And he who had so much to offer for the glory of his God as the last act of his mortal flesh hung headless as an honor to the Philistine God. What a tragic end for what once had been a noble man. Why a message like this? Why does God include a story like that in his book? So that we'll not make the same mistakes or go down the same path. We must keep God first. Let Jesus be first. Let Jesus be supreme. Let Jesus be master. Let Jesus be the Lord. Let Jesus call every play. Let Jesus be fresh every day. And in the newness of every day's experience, we walk with the Lord like Enoch. Enoch, who walked on home with God. It's your choice. It's your choice entirely as to the kind of epitaph you'll write for your tombstone. Don't let it be. I threw away the chances. I played the fool. I erred along the way. Would you bow your head and talk to God? It might be that you recognize something about the decisions of King Saul, about the kind of decisions you've been making lately. Decisions that take you away from God and away from his house and away from his people, away from being the kind of man or woman that Jesus really wants you to be. Tonight's the night to do something about it. For the glory and the wonder of God is that when we have more than remorse, when we have genuine repentance and ask God to forgive us for the wrong decisions we've been making and the wrong roads we've been walking, when we ask his forgiveness and new strength, we have it from him. Claim it now. Claim his strength to walk the Jesus road.
fear God. May your Holy Spirit take these passages and like seeds plant them in all our hearts. Let us not forget that we're capable of being just like Saul, Father. That at almost every turn in the road, making decisions that pull us away from you. Oh God, help us not to do it. Draw us close to yourself. In Jesus' name. We're going to sing. The invitation will not be long. 191. I have decided to follow Jesus. What a wonderful hymn of opportunity. But when you follow Jesus, it's always the upper road. And if you'll stay hand in hand with Jesus, you'll never have to say what old King Saul said. It'll be across the Jordan River at last to the glories of heaven. Jesus wants to be your friend. Will you let him? These friends want to be brothers and sisters in Christ in a church home to you. Will you let them? The decision must be yours. As we stand and sing, make it known. Come now. Thank you. 